Welcome to Great Stories Podcast with Charles Morris. Thanks for joining me on this podcast that takes some of our greatest interviews, past and present, and we share them here for a new audience for a new time. Well, today we're returning to a conversation I had with the late Nabil Qureshi. As a young boy, all he wanted was to be just like his father, a devout Muslim. He recited the entire Quran cover to cover when he was only five. But at one point, he started studying the claims of Christianity. And he discovered that the historical evidence was stronger and more credible than his own religion. And that led him on a journey to meet Jesus. Now, sadly, Nabil went home to be with the Lord in 2017 after a battle with stomach cancer. I had this conversation with him three years before his death and just after the release of his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. You'll hear much of his life story here. How he left Islam, how that changed his relationship with his family, and why Jesus was worth it all. I know you'll be blessed by this conversation. So let's get started. Welcome to Haven Today, and this is the beginning of Ramadan. And we've done series on Ramadan, that holy month of Islam in the past, based on the lunar calendar. We thought we'd do something a little different this year. And on the line with us from Atlanta is a new friend of mine. His name is Nabil Qureshi, and Nabil, you'll get to tell your story as we go along here in a few minutes. But let me just say welcome to Haven today. Oh, thank you. It's a privilege to be on the show. Well, I've wanted you to be on ever since I got a call from another friend of mine, a former Muslim, who had you in his church, and he said, you've got to interview Nabil. And I'll tell our listeners, and we'll, we'll tell everybody a little more about this later, you have a most amazing book out, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, A Devout Muslim's Journey to Christ. And we'll get into more of that. But let me just ask you to paint a little picture of, you tell us first, where were you born? And uh, where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit about your family, coming from a Muslim family. Well, I was born in the States. My father uh, came to the United States from Pakistan in the 70s. Um, and he came for reasons of uh, religious freedom as well. There's persecution of minority sects of Islam in Pakistan that started in the 70s. So he came for that. He also came for opportunity. Uh, people all over the world want to come to America. They have a love-hate relationship with it. Um, yes. My dad came for, for all those purposes. Um, my mom is the daughter of a Muslim missionary. So even though she's Pakistani by heritage, she was born in Indonesia and raised there for the first 10 years of her life because her father was preaching Islam in the jungles of Indonesia. Um, mm. So that's my background, a very, very devout Muslim home. Uh, my parents were not complacent at all. Uh, from a very young age, my parents had taught me how to pray the five daily prayers, something you start emulating. Um, you know, you see your father standing and praying and you go stand next to him uh, before you even know what you're doing. And then as he recites the prayers, you hear him reciting portions of the Quran out loud um, as they do during the five daily prayers. And so uh, I had the last seven chapters of the Quran memorized by the age of five. Um, I, wow. had, uh, I had recited the entire Quran from cover to cover in Arabic by the age of five as well. 
Um, my parents were, were primarily focused on making sure I'd be a good Muslim and secondarily a good student and citizen. Um, my, my father was a member of the U.S. Navy. He, uh, he came and uh, enlisted. After a while, he, uh, he got his commission, became an officer, served 24 years in the U.S. Navy. So very patriotic family um, and also uh, very devoutly Muslim. Hmm. And and let, let's go back just a little bit because this may surprise people. Uh, early in life, I I know you've said before. Uh, I know you say in your book that the very first thing a parent wants their baby to hear uh, is the Quran, and so that's what you had whispered into your ear by your father as well as your mother at a very very early age. Yeah, it's tradition in Islam, especially Sunni Islam. The focus is on uh, on fulfilling tradition. Um, and Muhammad, uh, his his traditions are recorded in the Hadith. Apparently, he taught that uh, Muslims who are newborn should hear the adhan, the call to prayer, first thing. And so, when I was born, um, my father recited the adhan, the call to prayer, in my ear, in both ears. Um, and uh, that's that's kind of a pattern for uh, the life of a devout Muslim. You try to emulate what Muhammad did and what he taught, and it started from the very beginning. Mm. And then and then explain uh, you you recited the entire Quran when you were five years old. What 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 does that mean? Well, Muslims um, believe that the recitation of the Arabic of the Quran is a blessing. Um, just hearing the words, reciting the words. Uh, we were told to say the words loudly as we were reciting them, and everyone else in the house was told to keep quiet because uh, they would be hindering the blessings, the barakat of, of reciting the Qur'an. So we'd learn the Arabic script, how to recite it, and we'd just start reciting. Um, and uh, do we know what we were saying? No. No one in our house spoke Arabic. Um, but my parents would, as we grew older, uh, share with us English translations of the Qur'an, um, which uh, aren't technically considered translations. They're considered interpretations of the Qur'an. Uh, but uh, we would learn that uh, later in life. At first, the primary emphasis was just on reciting the Arabic, and that's what we did every day. You didn't just live in America. You were born in the U.S. Your dad was in the U.S. Navy. Uh, was that a little hard for him to be a Muslim in the Navy? And then what was it like for you um, as a Muslim uh, to grow up uh, just in in a culture where uh, you were a minority? My parents uh, made it clear to me later, I didn't have this insight when I was younger, but as I was growing older, I asked them questions, like especially uh, during Desert Storm, I said, well, what if you're called to fight in, in Iraq against Muslims? And uh, my father didn't hesitate when he was answering. He said, uh, when we moved to this country, we swore allegiance to it. When I, when I uh, came on the Navy, I swore an oath to protect this nation. And so my allegiance is to defend this nation. And he said, as much as possible, I will try to be a non-combatant. Uh, but my loyalty lies uh, to, the, to the United States of America. And, and he was very clear about that. And he did that without compromising his, his Muslim values. Uh, now, I'm not saying all Muslims are like that, of course. We can't generalize any group, um, but that was my experience, and that was the experience of others around me, uh, having parents who love this nation who are also Muslim. That said, you know, my parents also did tell me, Nabil, you're, you're brown, you're not white. <laughs> we live in a, hmm. a white nation, hmm. and people have Western names, and so when people see you, they're going to immediately 
uh, impute you and your characteristics and your attitude to Islam because you're the only Islam they know. And so my mom used to tell me from a very young age, Nabil, you're an ambassador for Islam and you need to be the most respectful person in your classes. You need to be the most honest. Uh, you need to have the highest standard of morals so that when, uh, when people uh, interact with you, uh, they, they know that Islam is, is uh, a religion from Allah. Hmm. And as we talk to you w this week on the program and have you on with me, um, we're going to talk about Ramadan a little more, get you to explain it, uh, what are the spiritual implications of it. But it's important that all of us understand your background. Uh, something happened uh, to you, and, uh, and I think it happened when you were a teenager from reading your book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Um, life began to change for you. How did it change? What happened? Because now you are a follower of Jesus after being a very, very orthodox Muslim. Well, it's a long journey, um, and yes. that is something I want to emphasize. The average Muslim who comes to accept Christ uh, doesn't do it overnight. It takes about seven years. Um, for me, it took four. Um, and it started with the fact that uh, my parents had taught me that Islam was the truth. They didn't just teach me this is what we believe, one out of many faiths. They taught me that this is the truth. And uh, there are certain claims that Islam makes that run counter to Christianity. Uh, for example, uh, Muslims believe in the prophets. They believe that Moses was a prophet, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Daniel. Jesus. And of course, Jesus. Um, they believe that these are all prophets sent from God. Uh, but there are clear differences as well. Uh, Jesus was just a man in Islam, very clearly denied claiming to be God, according to the Quran. Uh, Jesus did not die on the cross, according to the Quran. Uh, and if he didn't die on the cross, he couldn't have risen from the dead. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, Muslims do affirm that Jesus was the most miraculous man who ever lived, the most sinless man and also uh, is the Messiah who's going to come back at the end of times. Um, so Muslims affirm a lot about Jesus. Interestingly, uh, the Bible says that there are three things you need to believe uh, in order to be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Death, mm -hmm. deity, and resurrection, the foundation, the cornerstone of Christian salvation uh, those are the very three things Islam denies about Jesus. And so it formed a body of, uh, of questions that I could investigate historically to see, did, did Jesus claim these things or not? Did he actually die on the cross? Did he rise from the dead or not? And as I studied them historically, I came to the realization that the evidence for the Christian faith was really strong, uh, that historically speaking, you can make a good case for his death deity, and resurrection. Uh, not only would you be making the case for Christianity, you would be simultaneously challenging Islam. And so when I saw that, I decided to investigate the historical foundations of Islam, and what I found uh, devastated me. I realized that the evidence for Islam was on much shakier grounds than the evidence for Christianity. Nabil, how, how old were you when, uh, when you really began to question Islam and investigate Christianity? And, and what, what was the, was there someone who came into your life? What happened? Yeah, I used to challenge Christians regularly on, on points of the Trinity and on the Bible and on Jesus. 
And generally speaking, coming up through middle school and high school, no one was able to respond um, to my challenges. Uh, they just said, you have to believe by faith. And I responded, well, if, if what you mean by faith is ignorance, then I want no part of it. <laughs> but yes. there, was a, there was a young man when I got to college who uh, had reasons for his faith. In fact, he had been an atheist growing up and had accepted Christianity when he was uh, in his upper teens. And so he started uh, defending the Bible in such a way that I realized it was a reliable document. Um, and mm. from there, we started investigating these matters together. And you also said uh, the Quran is not as reliable, which, of course, would put you into deep trouble if you were still a Muslim. Yeah, the Quran is seen by Muslims as the foundation of their faith. It's the epistemic grounding for why Muhammad is a prophet, for why they can believe in Allah and the Islamic worldview. I had been taught that it had vast scientific knowledge in it um, that was inexplicable apart from divine inspiration. I had been taught that uh, it had never been changed from the moment uh, Muhammad revealed it, it, had, it had, or that it was revealed to Muhammad, that it had always been the same. Um, and when I started investigating these points and others uh, more critically, um, in fact, using the same critical criteria I used on the Bible and on Jesus, when I applied those same standards to Islam, the whole foundation crumbled. Um, and, and, and that's an important point. Uh, you're not investigating these things in a vacuum. Uh, you, you need to compare them to each other. And when you compare Christianity to atheism or agnosticism or to Islam, it always comes out not just slightly on top, but, but far superior. Mm. Well, let's talk about then what happened. You met this uh, other young man uh, in college. He had been an atheist. He became a believer in Christ. I know in your book... You actually have this time of prayer where you are in a mosque. Just tell us what you prayed in a mosque, and then and then tell us the moment when you actually met Jesus. Well, um, you know, when I I was standing on the the foundation of my beliefs and my knowledge, and uh, it pointed towards Islam until I started critically studying. Uh, and really openly studying after a few years of investigation, again, not, not an overnight experience, after a few years of investigation, I was faced with the fact that, uh, that I might be wrong and that my whole family might be wrong and everything my mm. grandfather stood for when he was preaching in the jungles of Indonesia, that might mm. be wrong. And that's earth shattering. Um, and yes. it's hard to believe. It's hard to swallow. So you don't just all of a sudden change your beliefs and move on. I started seeking Allah, um, and honestly, that's what I was doing. I was going from mosque to mosque, and in my five daily prayers, uh, while talking to the imams, my, my goal was to, to find the truth about God, and I still believed it was Islam. And so I would pray, um, and uh, in, in my book, I record a very specific experience. I remember where I was. It was in D.C. It was in the summer. It was hot, um, and I just, uh, I just was crying to God, will you reveal yourself to me? I don't know who you are anymore, if you're Allah or if you're Jesus, but uh, you, whoever you are, no matter what the, what, what the hurdle is that I have to jump, the, the path is that I have to walk, I will do it because you're worth everything. Uh, I was a bit brazen in my prayers. I, I, if I could go back, I would tell myself to take it easy because it's, it's not an easy path. Nabil, in fact, just paint the picture what it's like in a mosque. Uh, your shoes are off. Uh, what's it like? Most of us haven't been in a mosque before. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, you know, the mosque for me was something I was so used to growing up. You you have a segregated section for men and for women. 
Uh, in this specific mosque, the women were upstairs, so they had a different entrance altogether. And uh, we would walk in the front door, take off our shoes, go down the hallway. There was a bathroom there where we would uh, get ceremonially clean. We would do the wadu. And then we would leave there and walk into the mosque. As we walk into the mosque, uh, the, the place where you pray, the prayer hall, you have to walk in with your right foot first. And there's a prayer that you recite that Muhammad uh, used to recite when he'd walk into the prayer hall. So we would recite that prayer in Arabic, of course. And you walk in, and you generally should walk towards the front. The greater blessings are for those who pray closer to the front. And so you pray there, and there's no chairs, uh, except a few for the elderly. You sit on the ground on a carpet, um, and uh, you generally make rows. Uh, so when you pray in congregation, you're standing side by side with who knows who. Um, everyone is equal before Allah. That's what we used to say. So we would stand next to whoever it was. Um, who would be our brother then, and we'd pray in congregation with them. In this specific case, I was praying not obligatory prayers, I was praying optional prayers, uh, nuffle prayers. Um, so there was no one praying next to me at that time. Everyone had already left. I was pouring my heart out, and so I, was, I had remained while everyone else had gone. Uh, and it was in this state where I, I just cried out to God, uh, Who are you? Are you Jesus or are you Allah? And even uttering that thought is sheer mm. blasphemy for a Muslim. Wow. Uh, but wow. I was I was there and I had to. I couldn't hide it anymore. Um, and so you know I'm I'm feeling this guilt that I'm that I'm even thinking this. But at the same time, it could be my salvation. And at the same time, it could it could be salvation for for those around me. But uh, I can't explain just how torn I was in that time. But I knew that God existed. I knew that he was the foundation for everything we are. If there is no God, our lives are pointless. And so I was asking him to just have mercy on my doubts, have mercy on, on me if I'm, if I'm doing the wrong thing, but just to show me who he is. Uh, and, and he answered in, in a huge way. So Nabil, from the mosque to the point where you finally cried out to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, tell us that moment. Well, Muslims often seek God in visions and dreams, um, and it was something that I had seen all around me growing up, um, and it was the way I knew to hear from God. You know, for Muslims, the veil isn't torn. You don't just go talk to God. Um, you know, God reaches down to you, and, and he can do that through visions and dreams. That's what Muslims believe. Um, and so I prayed God uh, to God for, for a vision and for dreams, and he did. He gave me a vision and three dreams that successively pointed me to Christ. But I'll tell you, I didn't believe the moment I had those visions and dreams. When I believed was when I turned to the Bible. After those visions and dreams drove me to the Bible, I picked it up and I, I checked for guidance from God to get me through. Um, and it was when I started getting to know Jesus through the pages of the scripture where I got to his words in Romans, uh, in Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 32, he who proclaims me before the people of this world, I will proclaim before my Father in heaven. And he who denies me before the people of this world, I will deny before my Father in heaven. I had all the evidence I needed to believe Christianity was true. I had spiritual guidance through dreams and visions, but until I accepted and proclaimed Jesus according to what he was saying, he would deny me. And so at that point, I accepted Christ into my life. What was the first thing you sensed after you proclaimed your faith in Christ? Well, after that, it became a struggle of how to tell my family um, and, uh, and what that would do. And I have to tell you, Charles, this was the most painful year of my life. 
because of what it did to my family, what it did to everything, uh, my, my whole perspective on life. Um, but, but what I realized when I was hurting, and I was hurting tremendously, I went to God in prayer and I said, God, uh, I, I actually prayed to him. I said, why didn't you kill me? Between the moment I believed and in the moment my parents found out, I was saved, they were happy, why didn't you kill me? <laughs> Um, that was my plead with God. And what, what dawned on me, what I think in a moment of revelation hit me, was that the reason God saves us is not just for us, but because of him and his story and what he's doing in this world. And, and what, what I realized was that if Jesus is God, willing to lower himself and die painfully on a cross for the sake of mankind, if I am calling myself his follower... That means I have to be willing to go through pain and humiliation and suffering for the sake of sharing the gospel with the men and women around me. That's what it means mm. to be a follower of Jesus. And so in that moment of self-pity, I reframed by God's grace. I think he reframed my whole perspective on the world. And that's when I really encountered the gospel and it changed me forever. Mm. Nabil, what happened when you became a Christian, coming out of this very close-knit, loving family relationship, and then you turned on your family. They would see it that way. Uh, when you uh, met Jesus Christ as your Savior and became a member of the family of God. That was, I would say, the single most difficult part of becoming a follower of Jesus. Um, you know, Islam uh, generally espouses an honor-shame paradigm. Um, and Muslims from the Middle East and, and all over the Muslim world, they when they do something, it doesn't just affect them. When they believe something, it's not just their personal beliefs. It's a very American idea. It's something that affects the whole family. And so when I became a Christian, that didn't just cause my reputation to, to get shattered in the Muslim community. It dragged my parents' reputation through the mud. I mean, here's a, a woman who is a daughter of a Muslim missionary. That's how she built her, her reputation, her life. She was well-known and respected in the community. And her son, her only son, became a Christian. That devastated her. And, and just thinking about those ramifications were, were some of the things that kept me from, from proclaiming Christ. And I tell you, almost unanimously, every Muslim who I speak to, unless they're particularly westernized, uh, that is what they ask me about. Nabil, how did you tell your parents? Um, mm. How did you get over this? My, my family was devastated by my decision to follow Christ. And uh, for years after that, my relationship was not the same. Um, my parents didn't come to my wedding. Uh, they didn't approve of much of anything that I did um, for actually the greater part of a year. They didn't talk to me at all. Uh, thankfully, they didn't disown me or they didn't try to kill me. That's happened before, too. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, definitely the most painful decision I've ever made has been to follow Jesus. Um, but it was also the most blessed decision. Of course, salvation, uh, which is what everyone thinks about. Uh, but Muslims who are alone because they follow Christ, um, who are ostracized by the community, they have to learn to follow Jesus. They have to learn to rely on Jesus. Uh, just like was my case after I became a Christian, very few Christians around me knew what to do with me. Uh, there, there was no discipleship program mm. for former Muslims mm. in the city I lived in. Uh, so mm. they had no idea what to do with me. I didn't really get mentored or discipled very well at that time. And so I was alone with Jesus. 
and it changed everything for me. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with me. Nabil Qureshi, I got to tell you what I hear when I travel inside America, in the middle of the country. People, even including Christians, are afraid of Muslims. And they think most Muslims are actually part of a terrorism network. Um, what's it really like, having been a Muslim and now being a follower of Christ and even having your life threatened uh, uh, for being a Christian? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked because the vast majority of Muslims are loving, peaceful, hospitable, kind people. Um, in, in the Middle East, in Muslim nations, hospitality is a huge virtue. Um, and so uh, in, in my life, everyone around me that I knew uh, was peaceful and no one had an issue with America. Uh, you know, I was raised in America. All the Muslims that I was with, they loved America. Uh, yeah, they, they usually sided with Palestine on the Israel-Palestine issue. But that doesn't mean all of a sudden you hate your own nation. Uh, now, are there those who come to America to cause problems? Yes. Uh, but their numbers are so small. Um, that we shouldn't impute their motives to other Muslims. Far from it. We should see this era in modern history, this, this era of immigration, this era of multiculturalism, as a perfect opportunity to share Christ with the nations. And back in the day when Matthew 28 was revealed, go and make disciples of all nations, people had to go. Now we can just sit back and let people come <laughs> and make mm -hmm. disciples of all nations. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what we should be doing. Uh, do not be afraid, uh, do, even if we did have to give our lives, which we don't have to, uh, but even if we did uh, for sharing the gospel, um, we, wouldn't, uh, we, sh we shouldn't shy back from that. That's exactly what Jesus did, and we're, we're his followers. Um, so what I hear you saying is that uh, Islam is fragmented, and what I'm thinking about is what happened a couple of weeks ago when uh, in Iraq the second largest city fell. Now, these were Muslims, Al-Qaeda-inspired perhaps, but Muslims fighting against Muslims. Um, I, I guess what I hear you saying is you can't just say in one broad stroke, every Muslim is like every other Muslim, and uh, they want to blow something up or they want to tear something down. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and, you know, it's a very complex issue. It's, it's, uh, it's the reason why I had to write a book on the issue <laughs> of uh, mm -hmm. what Islam is actually like. Um, you have the majority of people, especially Muslims in the West, are peaceful. And they, in fact, don't just live peacefully. They see Islam as a religion of peace. That's how they've been taught. Uh, they, they take the verses in the Quran that teach peace, and there certainly are many. And they base their lives on that. And so for them, when they say Islam is a religion of peace, they mean it. However, if you look at Islam historically, and what I mean by that is the, the historical tradition of Muhammad and the system which he left the world with, uh, the system that which we are going to call Islam, that is not necessarily peaceful. Um, you look at the final major chapter of the Quran uh, that was revealed, chapter 9. Um, it is the most violent chapter. So imagine being left with marching orders. Uh, in Islam, the last chapter was the most violent um, out of all of them. That's the chapter where you get slay the infidels wherever you find them. That's verse 5. Verse 29 is fight the Christians uh, and Jews uh, until they're humiliated and pay a poll tax. Verse 111 is uh, your lives and your property have been bought by Allah for this so that you will slay in battle and be slain. You know, very violent stuff. So the system of Islam historically as it was left was left rather violent, I'd say. 
but then you had all these Islamic traditions that were built up upon it. You know, we can't see Islam as a sola scriptura faith. It's not. And so you have these accretions of tradition. Um, and, and those generally tempered Islam throughout history. But recently, uh, throughout places in the Middle East and in the Islamic world, people have been trying to reform Islam, to take it back to its original uh, original mode. And every such attempt has, has uh, basically breeded uh, violence. And, and so that's, mm. that's what's happening around the world. Namil, was there ever a time growing up as a minority in the United States, your dad in the U.S. Navy as a Muslim, or even after you became a Christian, that you felt maybe like your life was threatened? Uh, there were times when, uh, yes, we were worried for our, for our safety. Um, when a desert storm was happening, um, my aunt was physically assaulted. She used to wear the burqa, um, and she went out shopping, and she was actually punched in the stomach. Um, uh, my grandmother was refused service at a gas station uh, because she was wearing a burqa. So there was definitely some tension at that time, and, and we did worry about our safety. After 9-11 happened, uh, the community center uh, in, in Norfolk, Virginia, where I lived, uh, the mosque there, the, the windows the windows were all broken in. And so we're even you know reeling with what do we do with the fact that our nation was just attacked. We're hurting just as much as everyone else. Uh, of course, we're probably hurting even more because uh, we're coming under fire because people are saying it's Islam and they're looking at us and we don't know what to do. And, and then all of a sudden our, our windows are broken in at our mosque. So it was a very scary time. Um, and uh, thankfully, though, uh, it, it didn't get much worse than that. Uh, I am now that I'm a Christian um, and I see the number of Christians slaughtered around the world regularly having been on both sides of the equation I know it's far more dangerous to be an outspoken Christian um, especially in in places like Nigeria we see what Boko Haram is doing there mm -hmm. um, and, and throughout the Middle East and Syria um, very very dangerous I personally received a death threat the first time I received one actually was one on my car. Someone had placed a death threat on my car, and so I knew that they knew where I lived, where I drive, or what car I drove. I had no idea who they were. Um, and the first time that happened was just a few weeks or months after I became a Christian, so I had to wrestle with that. And the first thing I did was go to the Bible. And my conclusion was, if they did it to Jesus, they might do it to us, and we should not be afraid of that. First um, Peter was actually very, very clear. If you suffer for the sake of Christ and, and not for some wrongdoing of your own, you're blessed. And as I look throughout the New Testament, I realized pretty clearly over and over the New Testament says you are going to suffer for the sake of Christ if you're a true believer. First, Second uh, uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says exactly that. Everyone who wishes to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. And so instead of being surprised uh, by this, all of a sudden I realized wait a minute, God has secured eternal salvation for me for a reason, so I can be bold in this life, uh, so that I can you know, pour myself out for the sake of even he who is my enemy. That's what the Sermon on the Mount tells us to do, um, you know, to not be afraid uh, of, of giving your, your clothes or your food or drinks to those who need it, uh, even if they're your enemy, because Christ has secured life for you. You don't have to worry about your own. And so that changed my whole perspective. Uh, the, the most serious occasion was probably when I was going to Michigan to preach in 2010. And uh, people had sent me emails, uh, more than one, saying, if you come out here and preach, we will kill you. And uh, hmm. you just went back and prayed. Um, 
my wife was out to sea, she, so she was she was in the Coast Guard, so she couldn't stop me. <laughs> um, <laughs> got some life insurance and went out to Michigan. And uh, wow. by by God's grace, I'm still here. Uh, but it's part of it's part of the Christian's walk, and, and we must not be afraid. We've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love, and that's the spirit in which we should walk when we proclaim Christ. Nabil, this is the very first week of Ramadan. Tell us a little bit about Ramadan, and and tell us how even the Lord God can use Ramadan to lead a Muslim to Christ. <laughs> well, God is able to speak through animals, so he can do whatever he wants. And in, mm. in the case of Ramadan, um, my goodness, I remember from childhood uh, just the magic of the month, um, almost like uh, kids wait for Christmas in the West. Uh, we would stand outside, you know, the Muslim months are, are based around the lunar calendar, and so we would stand outside looking at the sky, and if there were a new moon, uh, that meant that Ramadan would begin. Uh, if it were not quite there yet, that means we'd have to wait another day. So we'd stand outside in anticipation, what's going to happen? Is the new moon going to show up? And if mm. it did, we would recite a prayer right away, and then we'd walk back inside, tell my mother the news, uh, and she would already be in the midst of cooking to prepare, uh, because first thing in the morning, we'd wake up well before the sun rose, and uh, we would pray um, special prayers that, uh, in the morning. And then from there, we would go and eat our breakfast before the sun rose. And then uh, we would uh, wait for the call to prayer. If we were in the States, that usually meant that one of us would, pray, uh, would do the call to prayer. Usually it was me. And then we would start our fasts for the day. And the whole day, we would try very hard to, to be peaceful, loving, kind, not get into any arguments. Um, we would try to recite as much Quran and memorize as much Quran as possible. My mom uh, would recite the Quran twice during the month of Ramadan. Um, and then uh, in the evenings, uh, we would open our fasts, and uh, we would do that in community. It was a time for the whole community to gather, to talk about their day, to, again, be kind and loving. A lot of relationships were restored during the month of Ramadan. Um, we would open it with a date um, and some water, and then we would go pray the the fourth of the five daily prayers, then we'd come back and eat our meal, talk, and then uh, spend another hour or so together, pray the last of the five daily prayers together. After that, we would spend an hour or two just reciting uh, Salat, the, uh, more prayers until late at night, then we would go to sleep to do it all over again. My advice for Christians is to see Ramadan as an opportunity to build bridges. Um, a lot of people fear what they don't know, um, so get to know it, don't be afraid of it. See it as a time where you can come alongside your Muslim friends and say, Hey, look, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus, but I love you. Uh, and I, I want to I spend this time at your side. If you're fasting for the sake of Allah, I will fast for the sake of Christ. Let's fast together. Let's open our fasts together. You can do that. It's totally fine. Go to a mosque representing Christ. You know, bring, bring a light in all places. Mm. Um, and uh, let them know that you love them. That will build so many bridges. You'll be able to talk about Christ and, and, and joyfully laughing and sharing meals together. It'll be a blessing to many, yourself included. So I would suggest we spend this time representing Christ's love and, and, and his joy and kindness to, to Muslims. And uh, I know my mom came from Pakistan in 1977, and for the past 38 years, 37 years, uh, never has a Christian uh, representing Christ organically come up to her and said, oh, uh, why, I would love to have you at our house. I would love to get to know you more. That's never happened. We were never invited into a Christian's home. 
Um, and so my mother was very lonely uh, for the longest time. You know, not that many Muslims were around in the 80s. And so she didn't have any friends. Um, and she didn't get to develop those relationships. And there are many refugees and people coming now who have those kinds of basic needs. We need to remember that Muslims are people. And frankly, if we had been raised in their context with the same teachings they were raised with, we would be them. And so we need to remember that um, and, and to, to approach them just like anyone else. Do so with humility. Um, there are certain things that offend people, like we would be offended by things that they wouldn't recognize. They'd be offended by things we wouldn't recognize. But, you know, love covers over a multitude of sins. Just let them know that you love them. Show that. Don't say it. Show it. Um, and in your humility and in your hospitality and in your kindness, and for those who are in need, in your provision, show your love for Christ. And, um, and, and they will know then that if you do something that's offensive to them, you didn't mean it. And it's in that context where people will see Christ. Uh, you know, a lot of people come to America with these false notions of what Christianity is because they've heard about it. They've been told it's an evil thing. They've been told that uh, it causes people to become immoral. Look at America. Look at what happened uh, in, in Hollywood. Look at what people do on TV and on the beaches, how they dress. It's an immoral nation. Don't, don't be affected by Christianity and by Christians. And they're going to continue thinking that until a Christian shows them otherwise. Not tells them, shows them. So that's mm. who we need to be. Loving representatives of Christ. Uh, remembering that Muslims are people just like everyone else and introducing them to their father. That's a huge honor. Mm. Nabil Qureshi, the author of Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Do you mind leading us in prayer that a Muslim listening, or maybe not even a Muslim, but someone who doesn't know Christ Jesus will come to faith and find Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Absolutely. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you so much that you have given us the ability to talk about these things and to use our minds in order to reach out to you and, and, and that we can trust you that you will reach back to us. God, I pray that we would just shuffle off these, these lives of, uh, of no consequence, of, of running around in circles, being worried about, about finances, about health, about things that we know will, will pass away. God, I pray that we can have an eternal perspective and seek you and pursue you and know you because, God, you are the foundation of life. You're the foundation of meaning and purpose, and only you can heal this world. So, God, I pray that you would reach into our hearts, that you would reveal yourself to us if we don't know you so that we can walk with you in truth, so that we can be transformed by you, so that we can do what you do in this world, which is to love people and to make it a better place where, where people will reach out to you. So God, please do that through us. And if, we, if, we're, if we're committing ourselves to you for the first time, Lord, I pray that you would change us in such a way that we would never, ever have any doubt and we would know you, God. So Lord, lead us, guide us. I pray for my brothers and sisters now uh, that, that, they, that they would come to know you in truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nabil Qureshi, you are a blessing. Thank you for not just blessing me, but blessing all our listeners too. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for joining us on Great Stories with Charles Morris. I hope this was as encouraging for you as it was for me. And even though Nabil was taken home to be with the Lord sooner than expected, his life-transforming message of faith in Christ continues to change hearts. Praise the Lord for that. 
Another interesting note is that Nabil is in the American Gospel, Christ Alone documentary, talking about how moralism, trying to be good enough for God, can never save you from your sins. He was passionate for salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And so I appreciate that so much about him. Now, if you want to hear more conversations like this, why don't you visit our website and sign up for our weekly email that will keep you up to date with each new episode. And don't forget to subscribe through the service you use to listen to. And I just want to say thank you for joining me today for Great Stories with Charles Morris. Thank you.